From the Booth, a podcast where we talk about the films playing at International Cinema at Brigham Young University. This podcast is for week 11 of BYU's fall semester 2022. I'm Marco Olivier, co-director of International Cinema, and I am joined today by Daryl Lee. Professor Lee is professor of French at BYU and chair of the French and Italian department. He is also an affiliate of BYU's Global Women's Studies program and international cinema studies and comparative literature. His work in cultural studies has addressed 19th century France and post-war cinema. His books include The Heist Film with Columbia University Press, and most recently, Marianne Meets the Mormons, Representations of Mormonism in 19th Century France. Welcome, Daryl. Thank you. It's great to be here. Today, we're going to talk about the film Purple Noon that I think we're both fans of. It was a film that made Delon an international star. It's by René Clément who maybe is better known for Forbidden Games, I, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, that's also a good one that I think we've shown in the past at International Cinema. Let's talk a little bit about Clément before we launch into the film. You yeah. know, just his career, I think, is interesting, and it comes at a kind of crossroads for cinema, at least the movie that we're talking about does. Mm-hmm. So this movie, Purple Noon, is in 1960, Can you maybe contextualize that within the landscape of French cinema at the time? Sure. So we'll talk about René Clément, right? He's a relatively well-known mainstream director, starts working sometime around the end of World War II, and is associated with with what historians of film call the tradition of quality. These are excellent, you know, high standard studio productions in France. He's well-known. He works with important producers of the time, and is known for several different films, right? He's successful with this film that comes right after the end of World War II, when not many films were addressing uh, France's role in World War II, because you've got this collaborationist regime on the other side, and this is called The Battle of the Rails, and we'll maybe come back to that later. He wins an Oscar for Forbidden Games, if, if I remember correctly, and then one other film. He makes... Paris Brûle-Tille, so uh-huh. Paris Burning, which is yeah. this famous international production that has to do with World War II in the, in the mid-60s. Mm-hmm. I think American audiences probably know him for that as much as they for do. Games. Yeah, I would say. So war movies, you know, he's, he's understood to be an excellent technician. But this film comes at this miraculous moment in, in cinema history and French cinema history in particular, 1960, which is within a year or two of the start of the French New Wave, mm-hmm. right? These upstart directors like François Truffaut, uh, Alain René, Agnès Varda, Jean-Luc Godard especially. Mm-hmm. And as as we know, he was actually a target of Truffaut's. Yeah, dad, I mean, so. it's weird, right? Because first of all, when you mentioned cinema of quality, that sounds like a good thing, yeah. right? Yeah. But Truffaut, who's writing for Cahiers de Cinéma, who's, is, I think he went so far as to say that for me, René Clément is not an artist. <laughs> That's some pretty harsh very shade. Harsh. Like what, what, why? What's, I mean, what is being an artist for Truffaut versus the cinema of quality and what Clément is doing? Yeah. Part of that, I think, is Truffaut posing a bit. This is him looking for some kind of straw man in his very famous essay, A Certain Tendency in French Cinema, that comes mm-hmm. out in 1954 in the Cahiers du Cinéma. And this was one of these kind of hip and cool journals 
that's looking for the best of cinema. They love a lot about Hollywood, at least the auteurs like mm-hmm. Hitchcock and Howard Hawks. And they want to say, we we have this kind of stale, old school that yeah, needs to be your taken dad's down. Cinema, your da- it's your daddy's cinema. <laughs> it's your dad's cinema. Yeah. <laughs> and so he, he Truffaut throws him in with that. But I, I don't know that that's entirely fair when you look at... No, I don't think so full kind of spectrum of films might be a little jealousy happening there (laughs) sometimes i feel like that because you know i mean by the time that purple noon came out he had won about 30 international film awards you know yeah two oscars he won the top prize at Cannes with the one that you mentioned Mm -hmm. earlier um two golden lions at venice yeah that's that's impressive incredibly accomplished director but you know, not cool <laughs> enough for the cool kids at Calle du Cinema, right? <laughs> and I mean, to be fair, these are unlike uh, they would say a lot of critics these days. These people were both critics and filmmakers, yeah. and they didn't think his stuff was edgy enough or something. And that sort of begs the question then about this particular film, because mm-hmm. one of the most important parts of the film is its key actor it's central actor for for playing this role yeah by alan delon Mm -hmm. who is has what been in one film at this point maybe yeah and it wasn't he didn't even have a particularly great role in that film yeah so i mean we really are talking about a relative unknown Mm -hmm. actor in the lead and in the female lead as well Um, with marie laforet mm -hmm. playing marge well what's important then is that clement is tapped in a certain sense to connect with that younger audience through these new actors. And so if anything, he is connecting with the generation that would have been inspired by these new wave directors. So Right. Yeah. And he's using natural lighting locations. Everything he's using um, new wave is... a new wave cinematographer even. And, uh, yeah. uh, you know, this does kind of fit the bill to transition maybe from earlier work in something else. Yeah. Now, Delon, <laughs> speaking of, I mean, he, I think if viewers see this, he's just this heartthrob figure, incredibly charismatic, Mm -hmm. which is really important to his role in the film. And I guess they weren't going to audition him for the Ripley role. And he said, I want the lead. (laughs) You know, it's pretty gutsy. And from what I've heard, I think it was René Clément's wife that said, yeah, Give you him need the lead. to. <laughs> you know. I know what I'm looking at. Right. Put him on the big screen. Yes, exactly. <laughs> In full I mean, color. That's when my my daughter watched this with me, and she said, "Okay, now I have a celebrity crush." You know, <laughs> I didn't before, but he's pretty deserving. He's incredibly versatile. Yes, and you know, was in what, like four movies or so that Clément did, and mm-hmm. in different roles. And I think that kind of gets to, in some ways, as an actor, why he's so perfect for this role and what this role is. And so maybe let's talk a little bit about that, about his versatility and imitation. And because, you know, you're in some ways, it's you're making a film about acting, acting. acting. Absolutely. This is all about acting and sort of like life imitating art here, anticipating the art Mm -hmm. when... It's his charisma and it's his ability to act that Clément eventually realizes sets him apart for his generation of actors, many of them. So we want to talk about the film yeah. and the story. So let's talk about it. Like, I mean, how, talk about how it starts a little bit, you know, and like give, give the setup for, you know, who this character is. 
that Delon was playing. Well, this is like a really interesting story. The source for this is a novel by the crime novelist Patricia Highsmith, who mm-hmm. creates this character Ripley, who is uh, comes to be known as this forger, this art collector, and this mimic. He's able to to copy people and things in really interesting ways. And we begin this movie at a table on this seaside town of the Bay of Naples. Mm-hmm. You're not too far from Rome. It may, may even be Rome. At this point in this first scene, they're at a cafe. And Ripley, Tom Ripley, is there with this person that claims to know Philip Greenleaf. Mm-hmm. Dickie, uh, he goes by. And Greenleaf's father has sent him from San Francisco to retrieve his son, who was living this high life on this wealthy family's, mm-hmm. you know, belongings. And he doesn't want to come home. He doesn't want to face life. Philip Greenleaf is just there in the Mediterranean, yeah. enjoying the sun, the waves, the women, the right. drink, everything that you can imagine, this sort of delicious lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And Ripley is charged with the payment mm-hmm. upon bringing Philip back. Mm-hmm. And so the first that we see is them carousing together. They're having a great time. Yeah, at this he loves cafe. it. They're just having a good time. I mean, he and... even says like this mention of them growing up together. And he, you know, he's like, no, I've never heard of them. I don't even know we this didn't guy really, is. but he's such a fun guy. He's really entertaining me. Who cares? And he's Let's like just play. saying, Let's hey, play you know, look at, he can do all these kinds of signatures. He got, I mean, he can forge anything. I mean, this should be a red flag, but for, for the, for Greenleaf, it's incredibly entertaining. You know? So takes him into his circle, right? And right. his own friends are wary of... Yeah, they don't like him. Play. Yeah. And you wonder, because there are moments where you sense, like, maybe this is class-oriented. Mm-hmm. Ripley comes from this working-class background. Yeah, there's um, a scene on the boat where he kind of tells him his table manners aren't right, right? Like, he's right. Not doesn't using know how to right hold a knife. Knife, He correctly. doesn't know how to hold the knife, right. Yeah. And so it's incredibly embarrassing for him. Mm-hmm. But Ripley is this really... I think intuitively hyper intelligent characters able to to read people, read situations, and then also analyze people, kind of break them down and mm-hmm. look at them, everything from mannerisms to voice to lifestyle. And he's frustrated in terms of class by yeah. where he is. Yeah. But then also envious and saying, Why can't I be like he that? Wants why that. can't I enjoy that kind of a life as well? Yeah. And there are certain ways of getting there. Yeah. We seem to have chosen the route of education. <laughs> that's right. Yes. That doesn't get you there. It's, you know. And he's like, I need yeah. other means. No, and I want Those means it are going to be more nefarious. Yeah. Right? Well, and there's this great scene, right, where he is trying on the guy's shoes, mm-hmm. and then he just is trying on his jacket. Talk a little bit about that. I mean, I think it's a really fantastic scene. It's, it's a scene where... Marge, Philippe Greenleaf's love interest, they've kind of had a spat and they're kind of together again and making up. And so Tom Ripley is kind of ushered out of the room and he goes into this other room and he sees all these clothes of Dickies. And so he starts putting on the tie and the blazer and it's it's really flamboyant, mm-hmm. it's wonderful colors. He looks in a mirror and he brushes his hair to look like Philip Greenleaf. Uh-huh. And then he starts approaching the mirror and pretending to be Philippe. And mimicking his phrases, his words to Marge. And then what you realize at a certain point is you're looking at him in the mirror. Often in the corner are the feet of Philippe, who's watching all of this. Yeah. And I mean, it's this weird narcissus sort of, you know, scene. I mean, he's practically like kissing himself in the Mm -hmm. mirror. Lips against the the surface. Yeah, lips against the mirror. Absolutely. My love, my love. Yeah. like This seems to like 
push a button. This this seems to be a moment where Greenleaf realizes that something's off. Yeah. Why have you got my shoes on? Why have you why are you have my clothes on? Why are you talking in my voice? Yeah. Right? What was it about the the that. voice that well this is really interesting because if you think about it the human voice has such unique qualities right you mm-hmm. identify people by look by face by appearance sometimes mannerisms but the human voice is unique mm-hmm. we all have our own timbre or pitch or whatever it might be right. qualities to the voice that distinguish us and this is where i think clement's adaptation of Patricia Highsmith's novel is really interesting because she talks about this capacity for imitation mm-hmm. that's clearly strewn throughout it inspires right. the character. But Clément records Maurice René, this is the actor who plays Philippe mm-hmm. Greenleaf's voice, for the lines that Ripley uses at moments when he's pretending to be Greenleaf later on in the film. Mm-hmm. So, in fact, the voice that we're hearing is truly Maurice René's. It's the Greenleaf character, the actor who plays that, his uh-huh. voice. And it's, you know, this is the benefit of a simple technology, a soundtrack that is separate from the film track, right? The, right. The celluloid. And right. you can run those synchronously. And it's, it's a sort of technological trick, this magic trick. The point, though, is that that leaves the sort of creepiness to these moments when, for example, Tom is on the phone with Marge later mm-hmm. in the film and the voice as he opens his mouth, but the voice we hear is Maurice Rone's. It's yeah. not Andy Delone's. It's unnerving. It's well, unnerving. and it does kind of show how technology can allow you to, I mean, this is like deep fakes before there were deep fakes, yeah, right? Absolutely. It's like he's the, the telephone in the distance allows him to pretend that he's someone else. Thanks to telephonic technology the imitation of the voice that maybe in the way that the voice passes through the phone makes it not as clear and mm-hmm. therefore easily. It off. And then there's the the signature scene, yes. right? Talk about that a little bit. Let's so I, I'll say as much as this is a psychological phenomenon that maybe we could talk about, mm-hmm. this capacity to imitate that we are capable of as humans, mm-hmm. this ability for mimicry, we take a certain pleasure in it, What I find interesting about the way the film works this out is that it uses certain technologies for imitation, for forgery. Mm -hmm. So we just mentioned the recording, the film recording. Now that's not in the film, but the film exploits it. But then when Tom has to figure out how to do the documents, sign documents that are required for the financial life of Philippe to to come his way, Mm -hmm. to sell a boat, to get money from Philippe's account... He goes to this photo- photography store that's right across from mm-hmm. the Pantheon in Rome. Mm-hmm. And it's a really interesting scene, right? Because you see the Pantheon, the sort of classical yeah. architecture yeah. out there. He goes inside, comes out, and he has this projector that allows him to project onto the wall the signature. And then he has another device, and I forget the name of this, that allows him to make large-scale imitations. Yeah, my daughter was asking what that was. It's a, like the sort of arm that is yes. that is holding the pen for him. So as sense. he draws, yeah. you know, what might be something that's small, it becomes large on the screen, and so mm-hmm. that projection, which itself is a kind of imitation of film itself, right? I mean, and it's almost as if this this harkens back to Magic Lantern shows. You know, when yes. you see the projector, I think the technology that well, you already have to be of a certain age to even remember overhead projectors. I feel like, but the technology, right, is similar in, the, in its projection. But this is looks like a pre cinematic film device that's projecting on the wall 
something that he is then forging. Yeah, absolutely. He's learning the signature. I love the scene because it it's a this is a moment when the film turns into a process film mm-hmm. where the ambient sound and the this the musical overlay is is shunted off in favor of watching Ripley go over and over and over again until he can master this forged signature. My wife actually has that very device. Oh, really? It's used by artists. To, to protect make, murals and things? Is yes, that... and to make lar- so larger figures yeah. or smaller things that you can draw. And it says something about technological art, uh-huh. and it says something about the artistry in this imitative game that Ripley is playing. Right. I mean, it's reminding us that, you know, film is projection. Film mm-hmm. is imitating life or, or imitating a, an adaptation of a literary work in this case. And that's very meta cinematic in the sense that we're watching him again and again and, until he can imitate the role. So I think somebody might come along and say, well, that's just imitative in a reductive mm-hmm. sense, right? That it takes down the complexity of the character and mm-hmm. the intelligence But I would turn to someone like the German critic, Walter Benjamin. Mm -hmm. He talks about our capacity to mime things and mimicry being this sort of deep, almost biological compulsion that Mm -hmm. humans have. Aristotle talks about imitating as being this really important quality of of humans for their ability to learn and to, to kind of copy things. But in Benjamin's sense, writing for him and graphology, the mm-hmm. study of handwriting. Mm-hmm. This is one of the highest forms of human capacity. Hmm. And and so I don't think it's something that undermines his intelligence or makes him mm-hmm. just a, a mere copycat. Right. I think it shows the superiority of these qualities that he has. Whatever the cost is, if that is another issue. I do want to talk about typewriters too. Yeah. You've written on typewriters. Oh, yeah. Because that's Love another technology that allows him to assume the identity of Philippe because he uses Philippe's typewriter. Well, yeah. And there's that when they're talking about it on the boat, this is what's crazy is he's basically talking about the, a murder before he commits it with the guy and going, working through. This is how well, how would you do it? How would you murder me? What would you write? I only need to know your signature. I'll just <laughs> take your typewriter. And he also even acknowledges that typewriters have their own idiosyncrasies, right? right? The way that certain keys strike yeah. the paper or leave certain marks. Yeah. So. It would be like today's equivalent of saying, I'm going to murder you, but then I'm going to take your cell phone and then I'm going to text people on your cell phone to say mm-hmm. that I'm you for a while so that you can still be alive, but hiding. Right? Absolutely. But now it's, it but it's a typewriter. Thing. Yeah. So I just think it's fascinating. The typewriter, once Philippe is sort of out of the scene, mm-hmm. that becomes this dead but technologically vibrant means for him to to play this new identity this yeah. new role right so imitation is obviously so key to this and danger is also key to this obviously you know danger in that he's basically has no real moral compass and right. is willing to just get whatever he wants by killing somebody mm-hmm or killing somebody and replacing them or becoming them or if you know finding so we know he's a danger to others how is his game dangerous to himself yeah this is one of the most fascinating things about this movie for me i mm-hmm. think philosophers and people interested in, in subjectivity mm-hmm. could have a field day with this particular movie this is a fascinating instance of imitative subjectivity in part for the artistic reasons that we just talked about and of course situating this in Patricia Highsmith's novels about Ripley, you see that he goes on in in subsequent novels to become an art collector, for example, in in Europe. And 
moves the, through these different roles in fascinating ways. But what I see is, is playing out here something really fascinating. His ability to imitate so well means that he becomes absorbed into Philip Greenleaf's identity at the expense of his own unique character. And I think right. those who, who un get what's going on here, that's why this is interesting. It's not because we're celebrating a, a, a criminal or a murderer. Right. It's because we're seeing a very particular kind of subjectivity take over. And the danger is this, that in becoming someone else in so many ways, he loses his self, his, his own self. There's a sort of, to, sell, to refashion himself as someone other costs him his own identity, right. his own past, his own history. And, may, and he may be willing to give that up, but it's a sort of destruction, almost a suicidal compulsion right. in trying to get the wealth and the life that Philippe Greenleaf has. Yeah, and that collision, right, of even which identity he he's on is kind of his downfall, you know? Like, yeah. you're Greenleaf for a minute, you're Ripley for another minute. How do you manage these? How do you juggle these? I was drawn to this one essayist, a French writer named Roger Caillois, mm -hmm. who writes this essay on animal mimicry. Mm -hmm. And he takes this, um, you know, lots of scientists are writing about this in the, in the 19th and 20th century, and they're usually saying it's something good, like a, a butterfly that can imitate a leaf that it lands right. on, right? And I use that example in part because Greenleaf, yes. the name of Philippe is sort of this not so veiled allusion on the one hand to money, uh -huh. green, greenbacks, green, yeah, right, right. But then on the other hand, to this floral world and this world in which animals do these things to defend themselves, mm -hmm. I don't think that's what's going on here. This is an aggressor. Who's right. imitating, and he's finding a way to take someone else's identity. Mm -hmm. And in this Roger Caillois essay, he says there's something fascinating about a creature that has to hide to such an extent that it evacuates itself of its own identity. And in that sense, it already has kind of died. It no longer has a its own identity anymore. Right. It's not right. this individuated individual distinctive character it's something else it is already dead right and when you come down to it if it's dead in that it becomes the environment or it sort of you know is no longer itself it, it's the thing that it's blending into well what is he blending into he jet setters oh yes bay of naples yachts people who are entirely Late constructed through external signifiers right yes there's not a lot going on in the inner life of these people <laughs> that's what i get the feeling you know they're pretty vacuous and that they seem to and it's all those signifiers that he's after yeah but in the end i mean i don't think you have like a lot of deep appreciation for anyone it's not just him no it's no, the world all... that he's with you know. the exception, perhaps, of Marge, no, nobody else. And she's an interesting character, too, mm -hmm. in all these terms of art, because there's a character who's writing a book on Fra Angelico, right? She's uh -huh. this image maker herself. Right. And trying to analyze the meaning of this other image maker. She's a unique character in that. Before I forget, I wanted yeah. to talk about a couple scenes that look for these and see if you can figure them out. Okay. Um, one is the scene of the blind man with the cane. And uh -huh. Greenleaf imitates him, uh -huh. buys this cane from him. So uses his power and privilege for this poor man mm -hmm. who's looking around begging in the street to take that cane. And what does that, that particular scene mean? Or the use of street, almost documentary footage at times. Right. 
there's this really interesting sequence of that where Clément takes his camera in this sort of documentary feel that he'd learned in that post-war film, The right. Battle of the Rails. Right. He takes that into this film to give us this feel of the street, of mm-hmm. Italy, of people, of society, with Alain Delon walking through these streets in Rome, highly recognizable. Mm-hmm. But one in particular is fascinating, and that's the one where he has assumed Philippe's identity, and he goes through this market, the fish market. Uh-huh. And you see all of these heads and faces of these creatures. That, yes. And there's like rays that have that, these little human-like yes, faces. Yes, exactly. They yeah. look like humans. Yeah. And there's this moment It's almost of comical, yeah. This thinking that's sort of accidental in the filming of The mm-hmm. Fish Market, but it's this sort of human, non-human, right. non-mammal kind of creature. Yeah. It's... It has its own creepiness to it. It does. It does. It's it's odd because it's unsettling and it's comical and disturbing at the same time. There's something yeah. totally animalistic about, about the film in a couple moments. I don't know if you remember when Greenleaf dies. Spoiler alert. No, it's all right. <laughs> we give spoilers. Ripley devouring this peach. Yeah, it's crazy. But even more than that mm-hmm. is the second murder where... Before the body is disposed mm-hmm. of, there's this scene of this food being thrown onto the floor. Violently. Yeah, and there's like a chicken. A chicken. Head and, and all. you don't see it. You just think, oh, the you know this has been brought to him so he can eat. Uh-huh. And then uh, a few cuts later, he's pulling a roast chicken out of his oven and just eating it You know, with this voracious appetite. There's this sort of animality to it. It's uh-huh. really interesting. Yeah, that consumption that comes after the violence each time is fascinating. It's like that's his ritual or something. Yes. You know? I, so I read that René Clément had read these reports of criminals doing similar kinds of things, hmm. a kind of bulimia, a criminal bulimia. The psychic disorder is uh-huh. then transposed onto this world of food. So the criminal activity is right. matched by this other element of this character who's not quite right. Yeah. It's strange stuff. There's, there's so much, there is so much this where I guess we're almost out of time, but are there any other things that people should look for or pay attention to when they watch this film? Well, I think you've already touched on some really important things. Celebrity, this is going to propel Alain Delon's career along, really. Yeah. It sets him up, connects him to the Mediterranean, to water. The film itself sets up other adaptations of Highsmith's novels later on. Right, the one with Matt Damon, Jude Law, Gwyneth Paltrow, that people may know the talented Mr. Ripley. And then, of course, there's Ripley's Game with John Malkovich. John Malkovich, A sort of later Ripley story. But then also DeLone showing up in characters quite different, but where you see his adaptability, like Mm -hmm. this almost automaton-like character in the Jean-Pierre Melville film, Le Samurai. Love it. One of my favorites. Right? And you think about the two characters are so dramatically different, Mm -hmm. and he pulls it off. Or in mob movies with Jean Gabin, the clan of the Sicilians, or in that really tense kind of sexual, psychological thriller, La Piscine, Mm -hmm. the swimming pool Mediterranean water, sun-soaked Mediterranean, and yet quite different in a very different vein, a very different kind of story. So I think this really launches him. And in one sense, it should have given Clément a little bit more currency among the new wave filmmakers. It should have, yeah. I think that it's something that now we can look at with the detachment of not needing to pit ourselves against more established filmmakers the way that Truffaut was doing at the time. And, you know, I think 
people will really appreciate it. It has enduring appeal. It's beautiful. The people are beautiful. The location is beautiful. I hope that people will go and see this and enjoy it. And it's tense and engaging. I love it. Well, it's been a pleasure to talk about this today with you. I've enjoyed it. And please go see the movie. Thank you for joining us today on From the Booth. This podcast is produced by the International Cinema Program at BYU and supported by the BYU College of Humanities. We are solely responsible for the opinions and ideas expressed here as they do not represent any official position on Truffaut (laughs) or Delon adopted by the university or its supporting institutions. We thank our sound engineer, Hannah Guevara, and Johnny Stallings, who composed our podcast soundtrack. Visit ic.byu.edu for upcoming films and showtimes. And until next time, keep seeing great international movies.